0: Get your Bible out and uh, open it up with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is where we're going to be today. And I'll have to say, while you're doing that, uh, it's good to be a raider. All right? That's uh, all I'm saying. Where are my Texas Tech brothers out there and sisters? There we go. All right. Guns up. All right? Everybody in Texas is a raider now. Everybody wants to be a raider. Some of us were raiders before we were popular. Oh, yeah. And there's some bears, too. There's some women bears that are playing tonight for the championship, so we don't want to forget. Everybody wants to be a, ba- a Raider and a Bear, all right? Everybody wants to be a Raider and a Bear, right? All right, very good. John 13 is where we're going to be today. Uh, so, every great story uh, has to have a great villain, all right, right? You think about all the great epic movies like, you know, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or, you know, all any of these DC films that are out there now. They've got these larger-than-life villains, and uh, the, the hero's got to overcome uh, the villain, right? So every, every great story has to have a an, uh, protagonist and an antagonist. It has to have a good guy and a bad guy. And so when you look at the story of Jesus, what you find is that there is a villain, and that villain's name is Judas. In fact, just saying the name Judas, right? It just you, you get these images. He's always portrayed in the passion play with with the dark robe right? and the dark circles under his eyes, right? Because he's the bad guy. I mean nobody names their child Judas, right? Matthew, yeah. Mark, absolutely. Peter, James, name it, even Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, those are all good. But Judas, no. All right. We draw the line at Judas, right? Because Judas uh, carries the name, carries the the reputation of the person. The reputation of Judas is is the bad person. But however, there is some movement these days, as of recently, to try to rehabilitate Judas's uh, reputation. And uh, you can go online, you can look at Google, uh, you can Google this, find books, articles that try to recast Judas in a different light. There's some that say, you know, Judas really, he really wasn't the bad guy. He was really just a victim of circumstance, right? And, and he, he was caught up in the saying that he had no choice in it. He was a victim, not, not a, a villain. And then there are others that go even further and say, well, Judas, he was, he was actually maybe one of the best guys. Because you think about it, if Judas had not betrayed Jesus, and Jesus would never gone to the cross, and uh, the, our sin would not be paid for, so really, we should thank Judas for what he's done, because Judas is actually a good guy. And so there's a whole lot of debate, even currently, about all that. But uh, so who is this guy, Judas? and 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 is he a good guy or a bad guy and maybe more importantly here's a question uh, could judas's problem actually be your problem we're going to find out all right luke uh, uh, john chapter 13 is where we are today and this passage really picks up the story with jesus in the upper room with his disciples uh in the last few moments with them John 13, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that, he, that wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall, not, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Stop right there for just a minute. I want you to look up at verse 2 and and underline the name Judas Iscariot. Who was uh, Judas Iscariot? Well, one thing we know about him is that he claimed to be uh, a love God. He claimed to love God. He claimed to be a follower of Jesus. Actually, Jesus chose him. Jesus spent all night one night. Uh, praying before he chose kind of his inner circle, his leadership team. He prayed all night long, and then after praying all night, the Bible says that he chose those that he wanted to be with him, those that he would train and invest in them for the next several years, and he chose Peter and John and Andrew, but he also chose Judas. Judas was one of the 12, one of the inner circle, and Judas was trained by Jesus. He went to the seminary of Jesus. He t- Every lecture taught by Jesus, every miracle performed by Jesus. He was trained on how to preach. He was trained on how to go. In fact, he was sent out and he preached and saw people come to Christ and saw demons scatter and miracles happen. He came back and reported. He did everything that the other 12 did. He was, an in, he was in the inner circle. He was one of Jesus's guys. And yet at the end of his life, he became an enemy of Christ. He was chosen by Jesus. Another thing we know is that uh, he was an outsider in many ways. You know, uh, the name Judas Iscariot, Judas comes from the root word Judah, to be led by God. Uh, Iscariot, though, is an interesting name. Some think maybe it's just a surname. Others think that it is a a reference to where he's from, just like Mary Magdalene is Mary from the city or the town of Magdala. All right. So Judas Iscariot, many uh, scholars believe, literally means a man from Cheroth, which was a village in southern Judah. If that's the case, then Judas was very different from the other 12 in the sense that they all were raised in the Galilee. They were all raised up around the Sea of Galilee in that northern area, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Nazareth, that whole area. But Judas would have been the only one from the south. In other words, they had not grown up with Judas. They did not know his family. Judas was in many ways an outsider, unknown to them in many capacities. Judas also was a a treasurer. He was the guy that held the money. He was a CFO of the operation. He was the bookkeeper. And so all the money funneled through Judas. And you think about it, they would not have put somebody in that position if they had thought that maybe he was shady, right? They, he was maybe one of the most trusted. Oh, well, who should we trust with the money? Well, let's trust Judas. Maybe he had some skill in that. Maybe he had some background in that. Thought, Absolutely, let's let him manage the money. And what we know from John's writings is that while Judas would seem to be very trusted outwardly, he was taking money off the top privately, not just once, but all the way through. Judas was cooking the books. He was stealing From Jesus. I mean, it's a tragedy anytime uh, people take advantage of folks' generosity, right? Anytime I see a televangelist just milking money from granny that's on a fixed income, it's just wrong, right? And anytime you see a pastor that steals money from the church and runs off, it's wrong. And that's exactly what was happening with Judas. He was stealing money. He was presenting himself to be something he was not. He was putting himself out there that you can trust me, but you really couldn't trust him. I'm one of the guys, but I'm really not one of the guys. I'm a true follower of Jesus, but he really wasn't a true follower of Jesus. Another thing that we know about Judas is that his, his betrayal of Christ was foretold in the Old Testament. You may not know that, but there are many passages in the Old Testament that describe how the Messiah would be, Uh, betrayed, and and what would happen. For example, um, we are told in the Old Testament that he would be betrayed by a friend. In uh, Psalm 55, verse 12, it says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, but it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. Old Testament tells us that uh, the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 says, they counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and I the Lord said uh, the, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. This magnificent sum at which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver, not 29, not 31. 30 pieces, and when he realized what he had done, he threw them into the temple just as it was foretold. So just like the birth of Jesus was foretold in the Old Testament, and just like the death of Jesus was foretold, and just like the resurrection of Jesus was foretold, so was the betrayal of Jesus foretold in the scriptures in detail. And Judas was the one who did it. Judas was the one that betrayed him. And, you know, as you think about Judas, as I was thinking about it even this week, I was thinking, well, you know, what went wrong? What went wrong with Judas? You know, um, we don't know a lot of the details about Judas. We, we have no record in the Bible of when he was called to follow Jesus, uh, what were the circumstances in which he first met Jesus. This, this is not revealed to us in any of uh, the Gospels. But what we do know is that that Judas being the betrayer was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus wasn't shocked by this. In fact, Jesus knew that he was the one to betray him even from the beginning. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in in John chapter 6, there's an episode here, there's an event that happens here where Jesus has got a, a large crowd. This is about a little over two years into his ministry, large crowds are following Jesus. And now he's beginning to talk about suffering and self-denial and sacrifice, which tends to thin the crowd even today, right? All right. If you want to thin the crowd, just talk about suffering and then whoop, everybody goes. And, uh, and so that's what Jesus was doing. And he was preaching on this. And it says that many would-be disciples were turning away. John 6, 66 said the disciples turned away. It's interesting, 666, right? And and so, in response to that, they're going, wait a minute, all these people are leaving. And in response to that, this is what Jesus said in John 6, 63. He said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there, there are some of you who do not believe. And then it says parenthetically, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew from the beginning. He knew right from the beginning who it was. And Peter looks at Jesus and goes, well, we're not going anywhere. I mean, where else would we go? You're the one that has life. And and Jesus turns to Peter and he says this, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the 12 was going to betray him, Jesus knew all along. He knew all along that Judas was not really with him. He was on the team, but he wasn't with him. He was close, but he wasn't with him. In many ways, he was so close, and yet so far, and Jesus knew it. You say, but what made him turn into an enemy? It's one thing to, to be there, but not really there in your heart. It's one thing to be a part of the team, but not to work against you, but what what flipped the switch of Judas to turn from being a kind of a pretending follower to an enemy, an outright enemy? What, what caused that to happen? And I believe there was a moment, I believe there was a pivotal moment that, that turned Judas to an enemy. And it happened in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Let me just kind of tell you the story. It says that uh, this is now the last week of Jesus' life. This is uh, after the triumphal entry. Jesus is with his guys, and uh, just a couple of days before his death, and he is with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, and he is at their house, and they're eating together. And I believe, just prompted by the Holy Spirit and overcome with love for Jesus, Mary. Uh, took a very expensive bottle of perfume. It, the scripture says it was worth 300 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage. So think about an, uh, how much you get paid in a year. That's how much it's worth. Maybe 40, 50, $60,000 today or more of uh, what it would cost in today's dollars. She took this very expensive perfume and she broke it and she poured it on the feet and head of Jesus and she anointed him, and then she let down her hair, and she began to wash his feet with her hair. It was an act of love, it was an act of devotion. It was an act of worship. And, and everyone knows that this is a, a moment, but only one disciple actually speaks out, and that one disciple that speaks out is Judas. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible that we see Jesus actually speaking out of the crowd. Most of the time he was blending in, but this time he spoke out. And he spoke out in protest. He said, well, this perfume could have been easily sold and the, the profits given to the poor. And then John uh, gives us a little insight. He said that Jesus, Judas only did this because he was on the take. He wanted the money. But because of his influence, even it seems that the other disciples kind of agreed with Judas. Yeah, you know, we could have given this money to the poor as if they're protesting what Mary is doing. And Jesus makes a statement to them that I think turned in Judas's heart. Jesus looked at them and he said, leave her alone. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me with you." And it seems that that was a pivot moment because the scripture tells us that immediately after that episode, that Judas left that house and he walked about a mile and a half down into Jerusalem. And he began to meet with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and told them, I can give him to you. In fact, it says in, in Mark Chapter 14, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. It's so interesting, many times it says, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, as if you can't believe it, right? Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. He negotiated the price, he set up the terms, he determined the time and the place when he knew Jesus would be most vulnerable. So the question is why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? And the honest answer is, we don't know. That's the honest answer. Now, you'll read a lot of books and you'll read a lot of articles that will give you some perspective. Some will say, well, Judas was jealous, right? He wasn't really the inner inner circle. He wasn't the Peter, James, and John crowd. And so maybe he was jealous of them, and and so he retaliated. Others say that he was politically motivated, that really what he wanted to do was kind of force Jesus' hands to have to militarily oppose the Romans. And and the only way he could do that was to give him over into his hands, and that he would be forced to call the crowds to respond. Uh, Maybe others said he just wanted the money. He had been on the take the whole time, and now that he's his gravy train was coming to an end, he cashed out one last time by selling Jesus. Any one of those could be true. We really don't know. We don't know really what his motivations were, but what we do know is this, he was not a victim. Judas chose this. He chose to steal. He chose to, to deceit, uh, be deceitful and, and, and deceive his uh, own guys in the 12, his own friends. He chose to play the part. He's the one that initiated uh, coming to the Pharisees. He's the one that set up the plot. He negotiated the turn. He took the money. He did all of it. He initiated the whole. This was not a crime of passion. This was a crime of premeditation, clearly. So he's not a victim. You know, it's interesting. I read an article this week about Uh, our Chinese Christian brothers and sisters that are being persecuted right now in China. There there are spikes of persecution happening in China today, right now. And in one particular city, Gansu, which is just north of Hong Kong, uh, the government there is actually putting a bounty on Christian heads. If you can identify a Christian, they will pay you up to $1,500 to identify a Christian. In fact, this article said this, the Gansu government wants to turn people into many Judases that will betray their Christian friends. Question is, what would it take for you to betray your brothers and sisters? What would it take for you to turn your back on Jesus? Well, all that kind of brings us back to the passage we just read. It is now the upper room. Jesus already knows the wheels are in motion. He already knows what has happened in Judas' heart. He already knows that, that he has had these conversations. He knows that everything is moving toward his betrayal. And so in a sense of love and devotion for his men, it says that Jesus took off his outer cloak and he tied a towel around his waist and he picked up a basin and towel and he knelt down and he began to wash his disciples' feet. This was an act of humility. It was an act of love, an act of tenderness. He washed every single one of them, and he came to Judas, and he washed Judas's feet too. I could just imagine that maybe while he's washing his feet, he looked up and he made eye contact with Judas. Maybe he prayed silently as he was washing his feet, Father, forgive him, for he doesn't know what he's doing. But while other disciples were moved in their heart, it seemed that Judas was just stone cold, indifferent to the love of Jesus. And then Jesus put his cloak back on, he took a seat at the table, and being overwhelmed with emotion, we, we continue to we read, look at verse 21, chapter 13, verse 21, look at what he says. It says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so he had dipped the morsel. He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It says in verse 27 that Satan entered into him. The Bible is very clear that that there is a force of evil in the world, personal evil. That uh, while there are evil acts, there is always a force of evil that empowers those evil acts. And that Satan is always ready to help you do the wrong thing. Satan is always ready to tempt you, to offend God, and then empower you and help you to do it. And if you do not know Christ, you are even more susceptible to the forces of evil in this world than you can possibly realize. Said Satan entered into him. Satan empowered him. And Jesus saw the darkness in his heart. He saw what, what was happening in Judas. And so he looked at Judas and he said, Judas, just do it. What you have in your heart to do, what you've always had in your heart to do, just get it over with. Just do it. Do it quickly. And he left and John tells us very simply and prophetically, it was night. It was not only night on the outside, it was night in the, in the darkness of Judas' soul. This was a time when darkness would reign and interestingly, what happened is that while Judas left immediately and he went right to the Pharisees, right to the leaders that were waiting for him, right to assemble the army that they would have to, to take Jesus. At the same time that is happening, Jesus turned to his 11 disciples and he broke bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he poured the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Remember me. Remember me. It says that Jesus took his disciples and he went to the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means uh, olive press and there Jesus was under pressure and he cried out to his father, Father, if there's any other way, uh, Lord, uh, let me escape this, but not my will, yours be done. He was under such great pressure that it says he he, he sweat, as it were, great droughts of blood. Even those that were closest to him could not fully carry this weight. They could not fully understand what he was dealing with. They could not even stay awake. But after praying three times, he stood up and he saw a large crowd moving toward him. A large group of people and Judas leading the way. John's gospel tells us that that it was a detachment of soldiers. Soldiers an detachment could be up to 600 soldiers think about it that number of soldiers coming to take one guy why is that why do they send so many people well Jesus remember was incredibly popular throngs of people were following him what if they got word of this what if they rose up to defend Jesus they had to be armed to the teeth and so they came this crowd of soldiers to take this one man. They weren't sure who it was. It was dark, of course. They, they weren't sure exactly who Jesus was. And that's why Judas was there. To pick him out. And so Judas came to Jesus and he grabbed him by the shoulders. And he said, Rabbi, teacher. And he kissed him on the cheek. And Jesus said, friend, you betray me with a kiss. From that moment, it says that they bound Jesus. They put him in chains. They wrapped ropes around his neck and his legs and his arms. They they took him away by force. And the disciples scattered. All of them scattered. The, The shepherd was struck down and the sheep were scattered. And I've often wondered what happened to Judas. Did he just run away like the rest of them? Or did he do something different? And I really believe, now this is just Craig, all right? I, I, I have a reason to believe this, but this is what I think happened. I think that Judah stayed with the soldiers. I mean, after all, he had led them out there. He felt very empowered. I think he stayed with them. I think he stayed with them all the way until they got back to Caiaphas's house, and they threw Jesus in the pit, all the way to where he was incarcerated, all the way until he was intimidated, all the way to where he was interrogated all night long. And he would watch as they hit Jesus in the face and as they spit on him and as they ridiculed him and as they brought false testimony after false testimony to say things that Jesus never did. And I believe that he stood there with his arms crossed, giving his tacit approval to every single bit of it. But ultimately, at the end of the night, they came to the conclusion that Jesus had to die. And so they made a decision that they would put Jesus to death. And then we read something happened. In Matthew Uh, chapter 27, verse 3, it says, and when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. See, I believe he was in the room. I believe he saw it. And he says, when he saw he was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 coins to the chief priests and the elders and said, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood, but it didn't matter anymore. It was done. What was done was done. They had what they came for. It didn't matter. See, there's a difference between remorse and repentance, right? Remorse is feeling sorry for what you've done. Man, I'm so sorry that I got so mad at you. I'm so sorry that I got drunk or wasted last night. I'm so sorry for, for that, uh, that crossing that moral boundary. I feel so bad about what happened That That's remorse, right? I feel sorry for what I've done, uh, but then I just do it again, and I do it again, and I do it again. That's remorse. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians 7 calls worldly sorrow that leads to death. It's just remorse, but it never brings any change. But repentance is bringing change. It's turning to God, right? And Judas never did that. Judas was remorseful. He was never repentant. He never turned to God. He never cried out. He never confessed. And so he left that place after throwing the coins into the, into the temple. And he took a rope and he went to a ravine and he hung himself. What a tragedy! What a dark, terrible tragedy. See, Judas' problem was this. And remember what I said? Judas' problem may be your problem. Here it is. This was Judas' problem. He was a pretender. He pretended the whole time. He pretended to be one of the 12. He pretended to be with the guys. He pretended to be on the team. He pretended to love Jesus. He pretended to believe the gospel. He pretended all these times he was pretending. He was pretending to be something that he wasn't. All the time that he was going and doing and and preaching and all that, it was all fake. It was all a fraud. He didn't really believe it in his own heart. He was with people that were changed, but he himself had never been changed. He was a pretender. And listen to me. I want to give you, here's the lesson we learn from Judas. Here it is. Pretenders forfeit the grace of God. Pretenders forfeit the grace of God, but repenters experience the grace of God. See that? Pretenders forfeit the grace of God, but repenters experience the grace of God. And you may be a, a pretender today. You may, be a pretend, you may have been pretending a long time. You grew up in church and, and you, you believe in God, you know, but, but you just kind of, you, you've gone through uh, Sunday school in church, you were raised, your daddy was a deacon or whatever, and, and you've grown up in it. And, and yeah, you, you come and, and everybody goes, oh man, yeah, he loves Jesus. Oh yeah, she's great. And they love God, but you know in your own heart that you don't, you've never been changed. You don't know him, so you just pretend. And you put on the mask and you pretend to be uh, you know, this person that I believe the Bible and I love God and I, I believe in the gospel and all these things, but you know in your heart that that's not true. And here's the thing about pretenders pretenders, and this has kind of helped you know if you're a pretender or not, pretenders are always afraid of being found out, right? They're always afraid of being exposed, that somebody's going to figure out that I really don't know Jesus. Somebody's going to figure out that I'm really not right with God, so I got to keep the thing going. I can keep the pretense going so that nobody will see what's really inside of me, but God sees it already. Jesus sees it already, Pretenders are afraid of being exposed. Pretenders will have a hard heart. Listen, you can't come to and hear the word taught over and over and the spirit of God convict and convict. And every time you say no, no, and every time there's conviction, you say no, your heart gets a little harder. And conviction and no, and your heart gets a little harder. And pretty soon you just develop this callous that you're not, you're not hearing him anymore because you've just hardened your heart over and over and over and over and over and over. So dangerous to pretend. Pretenders end up living a double life. That they're kind of one way with their church friends and then another way with their other friends and they kind of live this dichotomy of two different lives. Second Timothy says that of people like this that they they are deceived and go on deceiving. Going from bad to worse. It's just like they just end up deceiving so many people that they kind of believe it themselves. They're self-deceived. Sometimes pretenders just feel like there's no hope for me. I'm just gonna keep up the pretense as long as I can, but there's no hope for me. Listen, Judas was a pretender and he missed the grace of God. There are three names for Judas in the Gospels. One is traitor, one is betrayer, and one is found in John 17, and that is the son of destruction. See, he missed the grace of God. He missed heaven, not because he didn't have opportunity to be right with God. I believe that even while Jesus was washing his feet, that was an opportunity. I believe he was like, Judas, I'm going to love you one more time. All you have to do is whisper, Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, it's me. Jesus, I've been faking it. Jesus, forgive me. That's all he had to do. Harden his heart. Listen, pretenders forfeit the grace of God, but repenters experience the grace of God. If you would turn to Christ, if you just say, you know what, I'm tired of pretending. You're right, that's me. I'm a pretender, and yet I don't want to be. And I want to be right with God. God, forgive me of my pretense. God, forgive me of my callousness. God, forgive me of my sin. God, I realize it's me that's doing this. And I'm not blaming anybody else. God, please help me. Please forgive me. God, I'm sorry. And just that one act of repentance brings life and change and hope that could be you. Pretenders or repenters, which one are you? I believe that if you say, I want to repent, then that just means you admit your need and you cry out to God for help. It's not too late. I believe right now, just as Jesus washed Judas' feet, that he's that close to you right now. And if the Spirit of God is convicting your heart, all you have to do is whisper, Jesus, forgive me. sinners forfeit the grace of god but repenters experience the grace of god